Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, the worst kind of man. (laughs) I feel like there may be some people out there who might agree with that. That's just (laughs) horrible, Josh. Shame on you. I'm I'm sorry, Jason. I I just mean you know yeah yeah yeah. I don't know what I mean. Let's uh let's let's move on from that. I certainly don't think that, however. But uh, (laughs) we are talking about the films of 2003 in this season, and we have arrived at my personal pick for the season, which is a film called Down with Love. And um, I think in our personal picks we varied. Sometimes we pick movies that are well known that are just don't fit in one of our categories and we just really want to talk about. But this is a movie that's not particularly well known. And and as I've done in some seasons, I wanted to highlight a movie that I think is kind of underrated that uh, more people I feel like should know about. And I love this movie, Down With Love. It is a romantic comedy starring Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor. It is in a lot of ways a, a pastiche of 1960s era romantic comedies and especially The movies that Rock Hudson and Doris Day made together, uh, including Pillow Talk, which is the most famous, as well as Lover Come Back and Send Me No Flowers. But as I was mentioning to Jason, I'm pretty sure that the first time I saw this movie, I had not really seen any or almost any of the movies that it, it kind of plays with and parodies. And I think this is an enjoyable movie. Regardless, it's set in 1962. It's got this amazing colorful production design and costumes. Um, and it's sort of a satire of the old fashioned values of movies of romantic comedies from that era with a bunch of ridiculous mistaken identities and deceptions as these two characters, uh, Barbara Novak and catcher block fall in love as they're kind of deceiving each other. So, um, this movie I think is just so much fun. And so hopefully I'm hopeful that, uh, Dave and Jason will agree with me, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> it was not really, it was not a big hit. It uh, it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, um, which is a prestigious kind of uh, launching pad, but it didn't go on to, to huge uh, success. It grossed $39.5 million uh, at the box office on its budget of $35 million, which is not particularly successful. It's not a huge failure, but certainly not a success in the way a studio would have wanted. And apparently, I didn't remember this, but apparently it opened the same week as The Matrix Reloaded and was was viewed as counter-programming for that. But I feel like something like that, that was such a juggernaut that nothing could be counter-programming to The Matrix Reloaded. What do I know? I'm just the worst kind of guy. Oh, man. <laughs> Jason is going to give this podcast the silent treatment. You could have at least explained the reference, Josh. You could have done that for me. <laughs> well, it's obviously it's a reference to this movie, which is always, which it always is. And yes, Catcher, well, I, uh, Catcher Block, the Ewan McGregor character, is referred to as the worst kind of man. But he's great. Catcher Block is great. So, uh, you know, if you want to compare yourself to Catcher Block, Jason, I feel like it's positive. Look at you trying to spin it. You're a regular Robert McNamara, aren't you, Josh? (laughs) Yes, yes. As we discussed in our last episode, I am akin to the architect of the (laughs) Vietnam War. So now that we've... Successfully, it's what's each worse, other. that or a comedian slash podcaster. I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough call, really. <laughs> anyway, um, this movie, it uh, it did not get it got a mixed response, let's say, from critics and from audiences. Uh, in addition to not making a ton of money at the box office, it got a C plus from Cinema Score, the audience polling service. And I feel like movies, uh, oftentimes with Cinema Score, uh, movies that get low ratings, it, it it's it's because audiences expected one thing and got something else. And I think this is a movie that would have been really tough to market to make it clear to audiences what they would be getting into with this. So it doesn't surprise me that it got a low cinema score. It did, however, it got two thumbs up from Ebert and Roper. And uh, Roger Ebert liked it, although he was a sort of measured in his praise. He said, Down With Love is no better or worse than the movies that inspired it. But that is a compliment, I think. 
It recalls a time when society had more rigid rules for the genders, and thus more adventure in transcending them. And it relishes the big scene where a hypocrite gets his comeuppance. The very concept of comeuppance is obsolete in these permissive modern times, when few movie characters have a sense of shame and behavior is justified in terms of pure selfishness. Barbara Novak's outrage at sneaky behavior is one of the movie's most refreshing elements from the 1960s. Not to say she isn't above a few neat tricks herself. And I, I, I don't know that this movie is like trying to celebrate the values of the 1960s that Ebert seems to think it may be. That's not what. No, it's just an homage, you know, and uh, or a good, uh, you know, uh, modern movie that's uh, in that kind of pastiche. Right. You know, it's not trying to break any new ground. It's just kind of like a tribute in that in that way, I feel like. I mean, it is a tribute, but I think it's also a, a subversion. I mean, I think it's definitely not just trying to replicate the values and the ideas that would be in one of those movies from the time. And so when he says it's no better or worse, I mean, maybe in terms of the quality that that may be true, but to the idea that it's no different, that we could have plucked this movie out of the 1960s and it would be the same, I think is very yeah. wrong. Uh, well, you're probably right, Josh. I did try to watch some of those Doris Day, Rock Hudson movies, and I was unable to. So I'm uh, flying blind on the uh, reference points on these. Sorry. Right. Well, but you're familiar with the 1960s. You're familiar with kind of the values and some of the pop culture from that period. I would Josh, imagine. all I know is potato heads are just potato heads now. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with anything. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know anything about anything else, man. So I know I get what you're saying. Uh, I, I look, it's uh, it's. It's a good send up of it. I don't, I, you know, what, what, what is your question, Josh? Well, I think my question to Ebert is he seems to think that this is not necessarily a send up, but just a replication yeah. of it. That it is, and, and I don't think that that's true. I mean, it replicates a lot of the aesthetics of it and a lot of the storytelling techniques, but it uses that in order to do something that is more modern. And he seems to think that it's not mm. modern. I think a better current reference than Mr. Potato Head would possibly be Pepe Le Pew, which uh, I think there's a little bit more of a connection here with Ewan McGregor's character. Yeah, yeah. The idea that this guy would So be you're so calling Coucher Block rapey? Is that what you're doing? or? Well, I'm saying one might be able to make that. No, uh, that no, no. This I, is, I don't think so. I think Now you're great. being too woke, Dave. Don't make me go to the other side here. <laughs> you, you started. No, because Coucher Block, there isn't... There is zero point in this movie where he has non-consensual relations with anyone. Mm -hmm. Sure, he tries to trick a woman into believing that he's someone else, but at the same time, you know, he's everything he does is consensual. Sure. Right. Well, I think the point isn't necessarily that Catcher Block is rapey, but that the Catcher Block type of character in a movie from the 1960s would be a lot mm -hmm. more rapey. Well, again, I haven't seen mm -hmm. those movies, so... I, uh, I, I'm going to go to the local video store and I'm going to look up rapey 1960s in, uh, as a subsection. But I, I, were they, was Rock Hudson rapey in those movies, Josh? I mean, maybe not Rock Hudson specifically. And I've actually, I've only, I've seen Pillow Talk, although a very long time ago. Um, and I haven't seen the other two movies that he made with Doris Day. But I think the point is that a lot of romantic leads, a lot of romantic heroes, male characters, not only in the 60s, but in, in, in early Hollywood, in many ways, were, were very rapey. I mean, to go to something that we've talked about before, like in New York, New York, for example, which is a, also a pastiche of old Hollywood, that Robert De Niro character, who is a replica of characters from earlier than the 60s, but still is, is a bit rapey. I mean, again, I, I think you're just throwing around the word rapey a little too much. He's, He's definitely uh, harassing of women, but you know that's different than raping. Josh, rapey is, is a strong word, definitely. Right, but right. no, it's not just the early stuff. Like we covered, uh, say anything in 1989. Would would John Cusack's character not be accused of being a stalker standing outside a window? Right, like you know the whole right. the whole idea of romantic comedies is filled with stuff like if you like the character, it's romantic. But if not, it's just super creepy and messed up, right? Like the entire genre, yeah. the history of the genre. And I, but I think especially like, you know, you go further back that even if you do like the character, you watch some of these older movies and it still seems messed up. And my point here, though, is that this movie is engaging directly with that idea. And Ebert seems to think it's not. Mm. Well, it's finally come. Josh takes on Ebert. <laughs>
(laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, moving on from that, Mick LaSalle in the San Francisco Chronicle was more positive. He was very positive. He said, Down With Love is a very smart, very shrewd movie. And the smartest, shrewdest thing about it is the way it masquerades as just a fluffy comedy, a diversion, a trifle. Hardly a trifle, Down With Love distills 40 years of sexual politics into 100 minutes, using the romantic comedy conventions of an earlier time to comment on the governing social assumptions of yesterday and today as well. And I think that's what I'm yeah. saying. Thank you, Mick LaSalle. That's what I was trying to gotcha. get. Gotcha. Yeah. So. Okay. It's cool. I'm good with that. So All right. I don't think there's anything right. wrong with Ebert just watching it as like a fun, breezy comedy either, though. No, no, no. And it is a fun, breezy comedy. But I think my point about that is that Ebert seems to think it's a fun, breezy comedy that could have, again, been plucked out of the 60s that doesn't have any kind of reflection or change from something that was made then. And and, then they're commenting that's the case. That's for sure. (laughs) Manola Dargis in the LA Times was not a fan. She said, Down With Love director Peyton Reed gets the film's look and in moments, it's disingenuous innocence. But you have to wonder what he and the screenwriters, Eve Ehlert and Dennis Drake, thought they were parodying. The actors clearly haven't a clue. McGregor sharks around agreeably, flashing his teeth at a game David Hyde Pierce. But there's something uncertain about the performance, as if he can't find his footing. Renee Zellweger looks even more ill at ease, pretending that the world and catch is her oyster. And I completely disagree. I think the performances in this movie are fantastic. I, I mean, look, if I was going to criticize you and McGregor, maybe he comes out of the accent here and there, right? Like, I think that's a fair criticism. Renee Zellweger is awesome in this movie. Um, but the two supporting characters, Sarah Paulson and David Hyde Pierce, steal every scene they are in, right? So I agree with you. They're right. all, those are like the, the building blocks of the movie. And like, they're good performances and I really like the supporting stuff. And as I think we'll talk about in the legacy section, maybe we don't give Renee Zellweger enough credit for just as talented as she is in her range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think this is a movie that again, not a lot of people have seen, but if they did, you would really, it's a way to appreciate her. So yeah, I, I completely think Manola Dargis is wrong about that. And I think to your point about you and McGregor going outside of the accent, I think in general, he does have trouble getting an American accent down if you see him in another movie where he's supposed to play an American character. But losing the accent is is in character in this movie because he, Catcher Block, is Scottish or whatever and is putting on an accent, this, this sort of exaggerated hick accent as Zip Martin, the astronaut. And so for him to waver is is completely fitting with what the movie is about. I just mean when he's Catcher Block, I'm... Sometimes I'm like, are you American or not American? What's happening here? So Yeah, I definitely don't think Catcher Block is supposed to sound American. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's supposed to sound like Ewan McGregor. Josh, did you review this movie when it came out? Uh, I did not. I remember going to see it at a, at a preview screening. And maybe this goes to the fact that it came out at the same time at the, as The Matrix. But um, as, as both of you, as Jason and Dave, as you both know, like these, these preview screenings, when they invite, you know, they, they open it up to the public. And no, almost no matter what the movie is, if people think, oh, free movie, it'll be packed. And mm. I remember this screening being empty. <laughs> there was like nobody <laughs> there to see this movie. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted to see it. And, and I think at the time I was writing for Las Vegas Weekly, but they had someone else reviewing the movie, but I just wanted to see it. And I remember I, I enjoyed it and didn't necessarily know as much as I may know now about the stuff that it's, it's, it's influenced by. Um, but I think I was excited at the time because I love Bring It On, which was Peyton Reed's previous movie. And even though this is really nothing like Bring It On, I was excited to see what he was doing next. So, yeah, Peyton yeah. Reed's good. Peyton Reed's got a very good track record. So I, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. So yeah. J- did you see this at the time, Jason? No, this was my first time viewing it, Josh. I was just wondering if you had seen it. Could you come up with as good a byline as Rex Reed did? Down with, down with love. Oh yeah, that's uh, and actually, I think the Mick LaSalle review that I posted was like up with yeah, right with love, headline. So, lot, lot of lot of creative headline yeah, writing going. That's on what there. I meant, not so, headline. Yeah. yeah, but no, we we should never ever quote Rex Reed because he's the worst. Um, <laughs> but that's really aside from. I feel like Rex Reed is the kind of person who would be in one of those movies from the 1960s as a wacky um, best friend, and probably yeah. was. So. Yeah, something like that. So, Dave, had you ever seen this movie before? I had not. I always just thought it was uh, probably just some 
kind of silly romantic comedy and just never watched it. I mean, it is a silly romantic comedy, but it's more than just that. So, um, and I, and again, I, I hope that, that you guys, uh, saw some of that in it. Um, any other background you want to mention on this, Jason? Josh, it was ranked 13 out of the 25 best romantic comedies of all time by Vanity Fair. Number two on that list, You've Got Mail. So it shows you how <laughs> valuable so, that list is there, Josh. <laughs> uh, all right. I've, ne- I've never seen You've Got Mail, actually. All right. Well, so I can't. I think How to Lose it, a Guy but, in uh, 10 Days is also on that. Uh, you know, so, Ooh, that I have so. seen, and that is very bad. Uh, and you mentioned it opened Tribeca. I, the only other thing that I thought was cool was they really committed to the look and the feel of the, you know, 60s movies that they were sending up and uh they built 55 sets you know to kind of get that look which i thought was cool yeah i think the look of this movie even if you know whether you do or do not appreciate it as a whole i think the the sets and the costumes the colors all the way the ways all that stuff is coordinated is just fantastic so i uh, an impressive effort that was not rewarded at the time unfortunately so we'll take a, a break and come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Down With Love. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we are talking about my personal pick, Down With Love. And, and as I've been saying a lot, I, I do love this movie. But uh, Jason, how did you feel about Down With Love? I liked it. I thought. The dialogue was very quick and zippy, if you will. Mm, uh, indeed. Um, as I said, I like the sets. I think, you know, the cinematography uh, was excellent. The costume design was excellent. And yet again, we can give an MVP award to the uh, score. Mark Scheiman on this one, you know, just fantastic. I think that there were certain gaps in logic that took me out of it from time to time. And I think Act Three uh, hangs together by a thread. After the big reveal at the end, it's like it kind of it doesn't work as well after that reveal. And it's I feel like the writers Eve Alert and uh, Dennis Drake wrote themselves into a corner and barely got out of it. And see, I would say that all of that was intentional. That the idea of these ridiculous logical leaps is something that is inherent to not only comedies, romantic comedies from this era, but still, um, maybe not this sort of insane reveal that you're referencing um, in that third act where Renee Zellweger's character, Barbara Novak, gives this long speech about her true motivations that make no sense, really, but but make sense in the context of the movie, I think. And that speech is amazing. And we talk about how good Renee Zellweger is in this movie. And like, it's tough to sell that kind of insane speech. And she does it mm-hmm. in a single take. And it's great. I didn't mind the explanation and the wackiness. Like I did feel that fit in there. I would say from a technical standpoint, I know we stay on her the whole time. I did want a Ewan McGregor reaction shot in there. I get why we stayed on there because it's such a long, crazy, whining explanation. But I feel like reaction shots might have heightened the emotional value of it. But let's go back to act one when we first see Peter McManus and Catcher Block. And, you know, the first the first interaction we get with them is Catcher, you're fired. I have to fire you. I'm going to fire you. You're bad and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, uh, of course, not only one catcher gets out of it, that's fine. But two, this dude's never going to fire catcher. He's obsessed with him. He loves him and he might be in love with him. So like that whole scene just didn't work for me after I learned the relationship with the characters. I mean, again, that is the point of the scene is that he would never fire catcher block that he's performatively saying this stuff because that's what he would say in a movie like this. And also because that's sort of what that character thinks he needs to say in his position as the editor, even though, as you point out, he loves Catcher Block and maybe in love with Catcher Block. So to me, all that stuff works. All that stuff, it's funny. It's funny because of what you just pointed out. And maybe you didn't find it funny, but I think all of that stuff works. I mean, I can see in that third act after the big reveal, where you're kind of like, okay, now all the cards are on the table, what is left? And there's some more little twists and turns that I still think are a lot of fun and I think it ends in a, in a perfect way, but I could see how you might be like, all right, I'm over this by this point. Yeah. But I think those that beginning stuff, it's like, it's not inconsistent. It's 
it's deliberate. Well, that's a counter argument that you have, Josh, and I have to respect that. That it is. Uh, but thank you. Oh, you don't have to. You can. You can. Argue but no, I didn't. I, I guess you know maybe I hadn't seen enough of the movies from the '60s where character would do that based on you know the relationship, right? Uh, Dave did. I mean, again, I feel like you don't have to have seen a movie from the '60s. You could see how to lose a guy in ten days and understand that that kind of character. It just exists. well, it doesn't work for me, Josh. If it, even if it All does, right. did you feel? What did you feel, Dave? Uh, it definitely worked for me because, yeah, I think that I these think I are... win, Josh. You have Dave on your side. Oh, <laughs> that's true. Wow. That's true. That's, we're just insulting each other left and right in this episode. <laughs> this, this episode is vicious, but uh, but yeah, no these these are exactly the kind of uh, tropes and things that you expect to see in romantic comedies, and I think. You know, in a lot of ways, this movie, you know, you kind of set us up for it a little bit, Josh, when you first, you know, told us that this was the episode. I, I didn't know really anything about this movie other than, you know, I I heard the name and knew that these stars were in it. But uh, you told us that it was kind of a pastiche and almost a parody in a way um, of of those kinds of movies. And yeah, I don't think you need to have seen the 60s ones. I certainly haven't. Um, but I've seen enough romantic comedies to know these kind of uh, characters that become caricatures. And, you know, I think it really plays with all those things so well. See, I guess I didn't, I mean, you know, I guess to me that wasn't clear that it was satire as opposed to homage. Like I took it more as a, uh, like a full fledged homage than like, you know, a parody or a satire. So, you know, um, that's, you know, I'm just, um, like Ebert, I guess in that way. Right. I mean, but I think also one of the things that's great about this movie is that unlike, say, a movie that I think Dave likes, uh, They Came Together, which is just a straight up parody of romantic comedies, which I'm not really a big fan of. But I think this movie works as a romantic comedy that Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor have great chemistry. The characters are likable. You want them to fall in love. You're into them being together by the end of the movie. So, yeah, it's ridiculous and it's it's arch and it's satirical. But there's also some real like enjoyment in seeing these characters fall in love. But if you're if you're saying that, that it works as a real romantic comedy, and this is for someone who like I like the movie, right? If you're yeah. saying it works as a real romantic comedy, then act three is a total just uh, you know, just splatter of nonsense because it goes too far out there with the explanation and the steps after it. And that and then if it was just that, then it's just like you know, it just goes, it just becomes too much at some point. I mean, I think those explanations though, and the ridiculous lengths that those characters go to, to kind of deceive each other or whatever, are in a way proof of how much they care and how invested they are in being together, that they'll go to these absurd lengths. So I'm, I'm, I'm then with she you. she leaves anyway. Well, right. But then he goes, but the point is then he goes to more absurd lengths to get her back because he realizes how much in love he is with her. And they, they do, you know, spoiler, they do end up together at the end. I mean, again, I can see how by that point in the movie, you might be like, all right, all the cards are on the table. I get it. Let's wrap this up. But I still enjoy the little, and I still think there's just a lot of funny moments there in that last, you know, 10, 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, I, I guess to me, that was the weakest point of it. Because, you know, I thought, like I said, like uh, little things like when, you know, she sees her new New York apartment and it's so like, futuristic according to the 60s right like and and the music's just perfect under there and the music the the dialogue that they have which is fast and quippy the music adds to all of that like the credit sequence which is kind of one of those fun animated things that uh i always think of uh, catch me if you can kind of also had a nice version of that like i like all that stuff and i liked um the relationships and like i said the performances are great and um it just i just think like it maybe just wasn't as strong, you know, minutes 75 through 95 or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and I, again, I would agree that maybe that's the weakest part of the movie, but I still, I still enjoyed it all the way through, you know, we're talking a lot there essentially about like the plot. Um, but so much of what's enjoyable about this movie is not, is not just the, the way that it's structured. I mean, the dialogue, as you said, is, is, is zippy is so clever and full of puns and I mean, this is a movie that's just like incredibly well written, uh, I think. And I mean, that's just one element of it, but that's well, that's what you start with. And I think that's really, really well. Yeah, done. I liked it. I mean, you know, again, like, you know, this could go this could go in the direction of uh, Samantha from Sex in the City, where you're like, 
oh my God, how many sex puns can you make? But I don't think it got there. I think it was fun where, you know, where, um, you know, the Vicky characters on a, on a uh, date with the uh, quarterback and uh, catcher says to Peter, he's, uh, he's completed for 1,432 passes. And then, uh, and Peter says, is he going for 1,433? Like, that's good. That's really funny, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with you. The dialogue is good. It's so weird to me that these writers really never, you know, they have story credit on Legally Blonde too, but they've never really done anything since this. Yeah, it's it's insane to me. And I we'll, we could talk about this later in the legacy, but I was trying to find what even happened to them. Like, where did they go? And this movie wasn't such, I mean, we talked about Geely, for example, that was such a giant failure that Martin Brest like self-exiled him, you know, from Hollywood. But this movie, it may not have been a big hit, but it wasn't such a giant failure. Yeah. That no one involved could work again. Sure. And it had and 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 it has its following and it had some good reviews. So I agree with you. Um, my favorite line in the whole movie, Josh, was when Catcher uh finally sees what um barbara looks like and he's been avoiding her this whole time and he confronts peter and he goes you told me she was a spinster and peter david i pierce is so good in this movie and it makes you want to see more of him right he says i've never used the word spinster in my life okay once when i told my mother it was technically incorrect to call her son a spinster like that was it's just so good you know so um, yeah and then there's a callback to that at some point too when he's saying how he doesn't want to die a spinster or something um yeah it's hilarious and i mean there's a lot of metatextual stuff here in the idea of david hyde pierce and sarah paulson as the sort of sidekick characters who also tangentially fall in love and of course are being played by two queer actors. And there's so much, I mean, Jason, I know you're sometimes not in on the gay subtext of, of things that I'm talking about, but you cannot deny here, it's not even subtext. Well, yeah, it's but straight- we, they, they weren't out at the time. So I don't I don't know necessarily how much that played into it. It still works. I just look at it as like, they're great actors playing the roles, you know? And they are great actors playing that role. I mean, I think at least David Hyde Pierce was very, I mean, he may not have been out, but people thought that about him, let's say. And I mean, maybe we we don't want to bring in, you know, gossip or whatever. Um, but I certainly think coming to the movie now, where these two are very much well-known out actors, you can see that maybe that people didn't see in 2003. Yeah. Yeah, no, I do like the, the subtext stuff of, you know, Peter kind of being in love with Catcher. And, you know, even though it's like a mishmash of, you know, um, hijinks and uh, misinterpretations, like, the fact that he has Catcher's parents' picture up in his apartment and stuff like that is fun. And, and along the same way, like, what about the sequence with uh, Catcher and Barbara on the phone and, like, every shot is juxtaposed against against each other so they look like they're either having sex or performing oral sex against one another. Pretty funny yes. stuff, you know? Yeah, that's hilarious. And that's something that, I mean, I'm sure is written into the script, but that the, the staging of it, I mean, Peyton yeah. Reed's direction in this movie is really impressive. Um, yeah. The way that stuff is all put together visually. I do love that. And um, I will say one more thing about just about Sarah Paulson and David Hyde Pierce that, you know, you they, they get, end up married at the end, but there's so many references to the idea of this being sort of like a marriage of convenience or whatever. And she talks about, well, you know, if you're homosexual and you're in love with Catcher Block, that's okay. Yeah, we can still get married. Right. And even for her where it's, it's, it's less indicated. I mean, there's one line where she says, uh, as man hungry as I am, I sure do hate men or something like that. And you have to wonder for both of them, you know, their happy ending together is maybe just they can be married so that, you know, it's acceptable for society or something. Yeah, well, I mean, I like the way they play with, you know, kind of her position as a woman in a male dominated publishing industry at the beginning when, you know, she's brought this book in and she wants to give her opinions and, you know, the guy's basically tell her we're out of coffee. Can you make more coffee? And one guy's like, I don't want coffee. And she's like, thank you. And he goes, I'll have a Sanka, right? Like, you know, that's, that's what she's worth. And of course they get the last laugh and, you know, have a huge publishing empire and everything like that at the end. So that was fun. Yeah, that is fun. And I love just, you know, again, I don't know, maybe having seen any movie from that era or even like a TV show, I think of uh, Darren from Bewitched working at an ad agency and, you know, that boardroom full of, uh, the guys in the, the same suits and they all call each other by their initials. Right. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's just really funny stuff, I think. And uh, I think it's Timothy Amundsen from Psych 
who plays the guy who wants a Sanka, who's great, just so he's always holding his pipe and he's got those glasses. And I yeah. just thought that guy was very funny in the background. Yeah, and Josh, to be clear, I've seen plenty of movies from the 60s. I just haven't seen these Rock Hudson, you know, Doris Day movies. Right. No, I mean, and that was what I was trying to point out is that you're saying, oh, I haven't seen what this is about. And I'm saying, but you are familiar with this stuff. You're not illiterate on this point. I'm just illiterate in general, but I didn't really <laughs> feel like revealing that here. Thanks for letting me do that. Um, how yeah. about Tony Randall, who was in those movies, having a little reprisal here as the publisher? That's a nice nod to the past. Yeah, it's a nice nod. I mean, his part isn't particularly yeah, substantial, but yeah, but it's fun. It's fun to include him. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of great background players. I mean, people we know from comedies now, like Rachel Dratch and Chris Parnell, show up here. The the stewardesses that Catcher Block is always sleeping with. Uh, I like seeing Jerry Ryan from Star Trek in a very different role there as the British stewardess who he uh, who he sleeps with. Um, yeah, all of the performances down to the smallest level, those guys in the boardroom, they're all funny. Yeah, I guess. I mean, Rachel Dracht is such a funny performer. She didn't really have anything to do there. So, you know. But... No, I mean, that's a small character, but she makes that character funny in her brief moments, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> now, Jason's Jason's lost all enthusiasm for this movie. Sure no, I, you know way. what I did like was the, I'll tell you one other uh, detail I liked was that uh, they gave uh, Down With Love a Mad Magazine spoof cover. I thought that was a fun little bit there too. Yeah. So. A lot of, a lot of good little, little details there. And just in the, the, the depiction of the publishing industry, the magazines, the way that a magazine journalist like Catcher Block would be some sort of celebrity in the 1960s. Um, and just just that whole environment, I think, is just really funny and really rich. And, uh, you know, the the Mad Men style office at one point late in the movie when when Vicky and uh, Barbara Novak have started their own rival magazine and Peter McManus has to tell Catcher, we can't publish. We have no secretaries because they're, of course, <laughs> I- incapable of doing anything yeah. for themselves without the secretaries around. I also like the uh, montage of the book becoming a craze around the world in the different countries where it's a bestseller. Yeah, the fun I- thing about that is the Judy Garland stuff from the Ed Sullivan show as like the kind of rocket ship for it. Right. That, that actual too, clip yeah. of Judy Garland singing that song down with love and. What's great about that montage, too, is that it's the bookstores in all the different countries that are clearly just the same bookstore yeah. set re- redressed yes. with flags from other countries. Yeah, but if you did, if you made that movie today, would that be considered culturally insensitive the way they portrayed those people, right? You know, different ethnicities. Again, I think it's a parody of the cultural insensitivity of movies from the past. I agree, but I don't think that really matters to anyone at this moment in time. And, and I'm not for it, but it just seems like people want to you know, uh, light, light everything on fire. And, uh, I mean, maybe so. I think when a gauge for that stuff a lot, or at least for me is I'll look at like at letterboxd and people who are writing about who saw this movie recently or any movie and are commenting on it. And, you know, a lot of times you'll see something like that for an older movie and people will be complaining about depictions of cultural depictions or sexist depictions or something like that. I didn't see any of that here. So, yeah. uh, I think you're not necessarily wrong that that could potentially come under fire, but I think the movie handles it in a way that it's clearly meant to be a parody that I think it works. All right. All right. Jason's out. Dave, do you have any other <laughs> thoughts on this movie? Do you want to talk about the big reveal at the end at all? Or what? Yeah, we could talk about it. I mean, we, we kind of glanced uh, over it. The, the monologue is great. And one thing I did see on uh, Letterboxd is a lot of people comparing this to Gone Girl and sort of the lengths that, that Barbara Novak or Nancy Brown undergoes to deceive people. So yeah, yeah. What what are your thoughts on that, Jason? I kind of liked it. It's it's wild and nuts, and like you know, I could easily see someone being like ah, f this, but at the same time, it was fun. Which is that she was Catcher Block's secretary, and Catcher asked her out, but she said no because he knew she knew she'd just be another notch in his bedpost. So she went and left and transformed herself into this whole other person. And wrote a book and, you know, was going to become a strong, independent woman to get him to go after her. And she was one step ahead of him all these times. She knew he was going to keep blowing her off. And, you know, she kind of had this whole thing uh, well in hand and uh, it worked. It did. And I mean, the, the, the convoluted nature of that and the idea that she knew exactly how everything would go. And her plan was like, oh, all I have to do is write an international bestseller. Like, no problem. Yeah. That's what I'll do. But, but yeah. So when I accepted that, I was like, that's fine. But when we repeat the bit 
you know, well, I knew if I put an ad in this gender, you know, neutral newspaper or whatever it was, you know, like I was like, ah, we did this already. Uh, I mean, I think that's not nearly on the elaborate level of, you know, the entire movie leading up to that point. But um, yeah, I, you know, again, that's the, that's the one moment where I can see you feeling that way. Like, all right, we've gotten through this already. Let's, let's move on. But, um, but that, that reveal moment is great. And the monologue is great. And I actually like randomly was looking something up about it. And I saw some actor like on Twitter who was, you know, showcasing herself in a monologue and she delivered that monologue from nice. Netflix Love. Or you could do yeah. Gone Girl. If you could do both of them, one is your comedy piece and one is your dramatic piece, right? Right, right, right. So, Dave? You know, the main thing I like about this is that it's just really funny. I mean, it's a yes. very funny movie, but uh, I, I also like the, like, the complicated depiction of feminism in this. And I'm just, you know, a guy, so what I think doesn't really matter. This is a cis white male. <laughs> that's right. But, uh, but, you know, as far as what feminism really is for, like, real people, I think it does a really good job of uh, showcasing just how messy that can be for a lot of people. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think that's a level of, of complexity that critics maybe weren't giving this movie credit for at the time that it definitely has. And, of course, you know, in, the, in those romantic comedies in the 60s um, and, 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 and earlier... Uh, and even later too, someone who was sort of a career woman, you know, the happy ending is always that that person ends up a married housewife. And, you know, what's great about that monologue in part is that it seems like that's where the movie is heading and then it swerves from there, but it still gets the happy ending. And I like that about it. Dave, did uh, mm -hmm. your wife watch this one with you? She didn't, but I kind of want to rewatch it with her because I think she'll love it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely right in that wheelhouse. I feel like people who are into romantic comedies, I don't know, maybe they just didn't they didn't, they passed this movie by. They were all seeing The Matrix Reloaded instead or something. But it certainly has built a bit of a cult following over time. And I, I would love to see it uh, build more of one. So I, I do just want to briefly mention, we talked about those Rock Hudson and Doris Day movies, um, which is what, what, what is cited in, the, you know, in, in reference to this movie often. To me, especially watching it this time, I felt like Renee Zellweger's performance was so similar to Marilyn Monroe. Uh, in a good way. And I feel like Marilyn Monroe is an extremely underrated actor. So I wanted to mention a few Marilyn Monroe uh, rom-coms that I think do a lot of this similar stuff. Um, How to Marry a Millionaire, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Billy Wilder's The Seven Year Itch, which I think is just fantastic and actually has a lot of subversive elements to it. Um, Frank Tashlin movies like The Girl Can't Help It and Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter um, with uh, Jane Mansfield was kind of his muse. So I feel like there's those kinds of movies too. It's not just the Rock Hudson, Doris Day stuff that's being uh, tributed here. That's the way, buddy. You bring the meat like that. And I assume, Jason, you haven't seen any of that stuff. I might have seen uh, some of the Billy Wilder stuff, you know. But, there, uh, there you go, no, yeah. Cool. I mean, I just want to say, did, did, did that strike you? I mean, the, the Renee Zellweger performance, did this see some Marilyn Monroe in it at all? Yeah, I mean, I can see it now that you say it, I, but I do, you know, like I want to give her credit for what she did as well. You know, like she created a character that I think is worthy on its own. Oh, I agree. But I think, you know, what some what she does really well is she kind of synthesizes some of those influences to create this unique character. But 100 percent agree. She's fantastic in this movie and. Feel like, you know, the fact that it was so underseen, she didn't get the credit and didn't get the opportunities that could have come from it. I think she's doing fine, though. Well, she is now, but she had, she had, you know, we'll talk about this maybe later, but she had quite a rough, a rough period for a while, actually. She did. Yeah. yeah. All right. Jason's Jason's board. So let's, uh, <laughs> uh, you keep throwing me under the bus here. I just, I, they, I, uh, I've given my opinion of it. So let's rate it out of Josh. What do you want to rate it? I don't know. You want to rate it out of uh, five uh, reversible pattern dresses? The, <laughs> sure. I love that scene where they're, they have the opposite colors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Weger and Tara Paulson. It's a good entry into the restaurant, the way they walk also. Yes. yes it it gets three for me. I think you think okay. I liked it less than I did. Um, I just, um, yeah, I, I maybe I just liked it uh, on uh, the, the level that I saw it, though. So. No, that's fine. Three pattern reversible dresses. All right. I'm going to give it four pattern reversible dresses. I, I really enjoy this movie and I think I have enjoyed it more each time I see it. And I'm always happy to sort of uh, bring more attention to How it. How many times have you seen it? This was, I think, the third time that I saw it because I saw it in the theater. And then uh, a few years ago, I wrote a piece uh, on this and bring it on uh, when one of the Ant-Man movies was coming out. So I rewatched it for that. So it's not like I've seen it tons of times, but, uh, you know, three times 
in in sort of uh, year long intervals or whatever, and uh, and have enjoyed it more each time. So, Dave, how many uh, pattern reversible dresses would you give this out of five? I'm going to give it four of those, and right. uh, this feels like a movie. I'm probably going to even raise that rating next time I watch it. Wow, yeah, really yeah like that's great. I'm glad to hear that because I, I think this is a movie that I wish more people would check. It well, out. I guess I'm just a piece of crap, guys. <laughs> well, I feel like that's been the theme of this episode, so we might as well stick with it. We'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Downward Love. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we've been talking about my pick, Down With Love, which uh, Jason was not as into, but I think we can agree that there's a lot of positive elements. And, and a lot of the people involved in this movie, you know, did, did great work here that maybe because this movie wasn't a huge hit, they weren't able to follow up with right away. I mean, Peyton Reed, who, as I said, I loved Bring It On. I loved this movie. I was thought this guy is going to be great. And immediately after this, he made a couple of mainstream comedies that I think are really not that great. He made Yes Man with Jim Carrey and The Breakup with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. And that movie has kind of a cult, cult following. And Jason, I think, do you are you a fan of that one? Count me in on that one. I like The Breakup yeah. a lot. And I understand why people, uh, I mean, you want to talk about playing with the conventions of romantic comedies, right? That's really doing the romantic comedy in reverse. And I could see why people wouldn't like that. But it's a very good movie. I feel like that's a movie that I should maybe revisit because I think at the time it seemed maybe I didn't see that level of playing with the form. It seemed like just kind of a blah mainstream rom-com to me. Um, but I haven't seen it since it was in the theater. So um, maybe that's one to check out again. But of course, after that, he went on to make the Ant-Man movies, which uh, Jason, are you you're a fan of those? Yeah, they're really funny. I, I was surprised because I was getting Marvel fatigue at that point in time. And I just think those are like kind of lovely. And also at the same time, like we were all like we all like Edgar Wright, as we talked about in our 2007 Hot Fuzz episode. And, you know, Edgar Wright was supposed to direct those. And when he had to go his separate ways because he wasn't Marvel-y enough for Marvel, we were like, oh, this is just going to be another. But I thought I think the Ant-Man series is, is very good. Both of those um, are good so far. My favorite Marvel movies. Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily my favorite Marvel movies, but I do enjoy them quite a lot. And I feel like, I mean, that was the point of that piece that I wrote uh, a few years ago. I think his background in these romantic comedies or, you know, kind of relationship focused comedies, whether that's Bring It On or Down With Love or even The Breakup is, is a big part of why those Ant-Man movies work. And they're, they're grounded in comedy and in relationships in a way that a lot of other Marvel movies aren't. Yeah. And Paul Rudd's a perfect, you know, uh, runner for that. But I also love the, uh, fan, uh, the fan theory of how Ant-Man was going to destroy Thanos. <laughs> By coming up his butt. Yes. <laughs> and then expanding into a human size again. So there you go. Which I think Peyton Reed even, uh, commented on at one point. Yeah. Oh, did he? Um, no, Peyton yeah, Reed, we, I mean, he, I don't think he's missed. Yes, man, is okay. It's not great, but like, you know, great track record out there so far. Yeah, I think so. And I think there was maybe a period where, yeah, I, I, I thought Yes, man was okay too, but I, I think maybe it was a period where I thought he's not getting the projects that are worthy of him maybe. And um, the success of the Ant-Man movies, I mean, really has just made, meant that he can make more Ant-Man movies. I know he's directing the third one as right. well. Right, that's what we want to see is... All right. And, you know, he's done some Mandalorian episodes, which is a natural John Favreau-ian uh, transition, right? Who is right. A, a supporting character in the breakup. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what Peyton Reed does away from Marvel next. Yeah, I hope that he gets a chance to do that. I know um, he for years was like campaigning to direct a Fantastic Four movie, although I think he did not. I think Marvel passed him over for that in favor of John Watts. But hopefully he'll get a chance to direct something non-Marvel soon and maybe a more grounded story, uh, relationship-oriented kind of thing. Uh, we talked about uh, Eve Ehlert and Dennis Drake, who wrote this movie and then just yeah. disappeared. You got to find is, them, Josh. I would love to. I was trying to find anything about them, and I couldn't. I mean, and maybe I didn't look hard enough, but as you said, they have a story credit on Legally Blonde 2, which watching Down With Love, the Legally Blonde sort of franchise definitely seems like a, a good place for them to yeah, go. Yeah, I agree. Um, but they're not even the, the final screenwriters credited on that. And that's the last credit of any kind that they have in Hollywood. So I don't know if they, they left Hollywood, 
if they, but I was trying to see, did they, you know, did they go and did they write books? Did they write plays? Did they do something outside of, of Hollywood? And I just don't know. And I think it's a shame. I would be eager to see anything that they came back with. I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, like you said, it's, there's no way this movie, cause it's a good movie and it's well-written would, would get to the point where like, well, you're out. So, you know, like you referenced, they have a story credit. So what happened on Legally Blonde 2, they obviously uh, must've turned in whatever draft that, you know, didn't make the cut for the producers or the studio. And since then, who knows, man, where are these guys? Come on. Yeah, I would love to find out. Maybe we could uh, get them on, uh, do an interview right after we interview Martin Brest. We can do a yes. whole, Dave, where where are these I'm people who left Hollywood? Yeah, or were kicked out. Exactly. Well, we'll, we'll discover but that. But Josh, so. I mean, when we're talking about, you know, besides Peyton Reed, the, the legacy here is all of those actors, all of the big four are just, uh, you know, David Hyde Pierce, he's, he hasn't been in the spotlight as much lately. Although you would be happy to see him in anything, right? You know, right now he's got four Emmys, by the yeah. way. Uh, he's doing a show with uh, BB Newworth, uh, also from Frasier, though he won't be in the Frasier reboot about Julia Child called Julia. And the other three, I mean, are huge stars. And Sarah Paulson, I think right now might be the biggest star of them all. Yeah, Sarah Paulson has just, yeah. I mean, because of her work with Ryan Murphy, has just like skyrocketed. And, and I think she's good and she's great and down with love and she's good in a lot of that Ryan Murphy stuff. But I feel like at this point, I wish she would stop working with Ryan Murphy because he writes these very particular kinds of really big characters for her. And I would love to see her do something else. I would like to see that too. She did win a Golden Globe and an Emmy for American Crime Story playing Marsha Clark. And the same year she won the Emmy, she was also nominated against herself for American Horror Story. <laughs> so that's fun, right? Yeah, she's all over that. And I did I did like her a lot in uh, in a movie that Dave hates, Run, that came out mm. uh, in 2020 that was, I mean, that I enjoyed. And it's not a Ryan Murphy production, but it's still very much a Ryan Murphy-ish role. And I thought she was good in it, but I'd love to see her do something more akin to Down With Love. And Ewan McGregor is so good here and works constantly, but is almost never in comedy. I mean, he, yeah, you're right. He's not. I mean, I guess Moulin Rouge was kind of comedic is one thing I yeah. think of, right? And of course, train spotting. And, um, but yeah, no, I like him in almost everything. He's going to blow up again because of the Obi-Wan Kenobi show going back to our, uh, you know, other universe there. We're talking about big franchises here, but he's done a lot of good movies. You know, I think we recently mentioned Christopher Robin on another show, the Tom McCarthy show again, you know, and I, I like that movie. I thought that was a good one. Do you have an underrated Ewan McGregor movie you'd like to recommend? Um, well, I was trying to find comedy roles from him. And the one thing that stood out to me was uh, I Love You, Philip Morris. Agreed. With him and, mm -hmm. and Jim Carrey, yeah. which is uh, a, a sort of a dark romantic comedy in a lot of ways. And I think that's an underrated movie. Uh, that's the one I picked as well. I would go with the Fargo TV series, season three. I think he's great in that. And that's very darkly funny. That's know? true. He is good playing the, the twin characters in that one. Anyone a Golden um, Globe? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I love you. Philip Morris is good. And uh, sadly, the other thing I noted down that's sort of it's sort of like a failed version of this where it's a pastiche of something and it's just completely uh, flops. And that is uh, Mort Dekai starring Johnny Depp, which is just <laughs> terrible. But he's he's plays a ridiculous character. Well, and it's a ridiculous movie. I think there's another one you could say if you want to kind of talk about an homage to a genre with someone else who has been in the news lately, which is wasn't you and McGregor in Haywire with Gina Carano? And that kind of like B movie, super badass hero, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that movie is not a comedy, Haywire. I mean, it is sort of a, a tribute to a genre in a way, but it's not, it's not, it's done with a straight face. Yeah. Good movie. And yeah. It is a good movie. I agree. Yes. Uh, worth checking out. So, and we said Renee Zellweger obviously is great and has been doing really well lately, but she did have a period where she was out of Hollywood. She had a close to, I think, 10 year period where she didn't make a movie. That was after this. And then she's she's come back in a big way and won an Oscar for playing Judy Garland, you know, who, of course, shows up in, in archival footage here um, and had won an Oscar also for Cold Mountain, I think, a year or two. after. Yeah, this. she's got two. Yes. And she's been she's been, you know, nominated for four Golden Globes. And on top of that, you know, on top of the two that you mentioned, which she won for, she was nominated for Chicago and Nurse Betty, which probably deserves another watching from me because I didn't like it at the time. But maybe. I would now. Who knows? Or maybe I wouldn't. 
I haven't seen Nurse Betty, but, um, and of course on the romantic comedy front, she made the Bridget Jones movies, which um, the third one was pretty bad, but uh, the first two were fun. And, you know, in this sort of straight faced romantic comedy way. But Josh, as, uh, as we've talked about many times on this show and formative nineties movies and this angst ridden college or high school or post-college period, she was both in Dazed and Confused and Reality Bites, and that's a real accomplishment. That is. Small parts in those both, though, I think, right? Doesn't matter, Josh. It's not the size of the part. It's how you use it that counts. Right, right. Well, she was, you know, she was a big, uh, you know, big presence during these time periods. Hey, that could have been a down with love double entendre, right? <laughs> it could have. Perfect. So on that note, then that is Down With Love. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. And one thing we didn't mention, Josh, this was our 100th episode. It was. I, I was like spent all this time before we started saying how I hated to mention it. And I forgot. So thank you, Jason. Yes. Yay. So thanks to all our listeners in America, Algeria, the coming up countries of Japan and Ireland. And I don't mean those countries are coming up. They're right where they are. But our listenership is coming up in those countries. But all of our listeners around the world, we love it. We're happy that you're listening all over, no matter where you are. Let's go Liechtenstein. Come on, baby. Get those listenership numbers up. Uh, anyway, Josh, we are, like you said, on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. It is the best website you'll ever see. Uh, we are at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie pod on Twitter, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram. And that's what I got for you. 100 episodes. Yeah, it's exciting. We've made it this far. And, uh, you know, we'll look forward to the next 100. Find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signalbleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together, which has way more than 100 episodes. We have a lot of episodes. That's right. So check them out wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at piecing pod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, popcorn and puzzle pieces. So Jason, what's coming up on our next episode? Hey, Josh, I'm excited. It is a movie. I remember seeing once and I was kind of had my mind blown. Uh, so I'm excited to revisit it. It's our foreign feature, our foreign film of 2003 city of God. Fernando. So tune in. Nah, I don't need to say his name. You go. Okay. I'll, I was going to let you out the hook there. Oh, yeah, you <laughs> we'll say his name. <laughs> no, we'll figure out how to pronounce his name by the next episode. So tune in next time for City of God. Episode uh, 101. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.